So this week we're going to be looking at George Romero's 1977 movie Martin. It's the story of a young man, or a young looking man, who appears to be in his, in his early 20s, who goes to stay with his cousin. Both of them believe that Martin is in his 80s. And 84, is, yeah. And is the victim of a family curse of vampirism. And it's about Martin settling into the Pittsburgh suburb that his cousin lives in and living life as a lonely vampire there, I guess. It's the big question of the film, really, isn't it? Whether Martin is a vampire or whether he just has like a vampire fixation and he's just a serial killer. But it does kind of blur the lines there because um, Kuda, his cousin, firmly believes and, and seems to have photo albums and full anecdotes and recollections of the curse going back to the previous century. Oh, yeah. Apparently there's two other family members out there who yeah. are vampires as well. Um, and they've lived apart for their entire lives. So unless this is some kind of like in whole family hysteria that's been going on for, for decades, then there might be some truth to it. Yeah, he's fairly convincing, isn't he? But then, you know, Martin isn't your traditional vampire he's quite um he's not queasy but he certainly uh you know isn't biting the necks and you know doing any kind of and he dismisses all the urban legends of garlic and mirrors and having no reflection yeah, and walking sunlight's not not yeah that's not it. shy of got, crucifixes or the church and i don't think he even has incisors like all of his teeth look really <laughs> flat don't they but he says himself you know it's, it's just a sickness um, a sickness that runs in the family so yeah but then he seems to confirm that he is 84 years old so even though he looks young he thinks he's got all this kind of mileage in but he still also acts like really young as well very very naive isn't he mm. yeah um i want to get a slight caveat in here before we go any further um everything that george romero has ever done has been the subject of a cult following for coming up to 50 years now and it's been scrutinized and covered and fact-checked um and everything is out there so i am thanks not... for listening <laughs> goodbye <laughs> no I, it's just that i'm not that keen on making this like a a, a documentary podcast um uh, rather just our impressions of the film because yeah, you know, sure. there are there are many 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 podcasts and books in fact i found a book on my shelf which i bought and then forgot about him, which would have been great background research um, oh, wow. only, this, uh, only this afternoon. But then I thought it's it's better that this is just our impressions of the film rather than us trying to dig deep into its making, which has been covered many, many places and many times. So is that a book on the making of Martin? It's everything. It's um, thoroughly researched. Uh, it's got all the backstory of everyone involved, but it's basically, you know, uh, uh, all the themes and ideas and everything in it. All right, okay. Well, it's really, really good from the from the skim I gave it this afternoon. Yeah, sure. Um, sorry, that's uh, the Midnight Movie Monograph, Martin by Jez Winship, and it's published by Electric Dreamhouse. Um, I'd highly recommend their monographs on horror movies. Oh yeah, okay. Let's uh, we'll put a link to it as well. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I have to say, it's one of those movies. You know, I I knew of the title. I'm not a huge Romero fan. No, me neither. Um, you know, I liked bits of monkey shines and <laughs> the um the third zombie film but yeah the rest of it i can kind of take or leave i came to night of the living dead after an in you know obviously i was young but an entire lifetime of of reading about how legendary and earth-shaking it was and then you know i watched it in at age 20 and it's just like which i can imagine 
many people watching films that I think are formative and stunning and groundbreaking because <laughs> I was there at the time. But yeah, sure. I just watched it and it's just like a bit of a shrug. And I do intend to go back to it. You know, I've, I've bought the Criterion and it's sitting on the shelf. Dawn of the Dead, I detested. And I know I'm going to get hate comments for that. I do intend <laughs> to I do intend to go back to it now, almost 30 years later. But at the time, it was just kind of a, a choppy action gore movie with a very, very clunky you know subtext that is basically text you know it's a it's a satire on consumerism because the zombies are shuffling around a shopping mall like zombie consumers it's 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 pretty much what on the nose is a phrase coined to describe <laughs> i didn't find it that impressive but i do plan to revisit it and martin for me is just the sort of small scale oddity that, that just just hits the right notes it's just perfect for me i'd ha- i'd say i was probably a few minutes in before it won me over because you know it is clearly a low budget movie mm. you know mostly non actors shot on location and you know there's some stuff in the opening scenes that doesn't make any sense at all like he's preparing his injection sedative for his victim in the toilets on the train when he actually has a really nice secluded cabin that he's not sharing with anyone so he didn't need to make like the journey to and i was like what on earth is this this is so so clunky and amateurish and then there's that moment where he's picked the lock and he's about to burst in on the woman that he kills straight away at the beginning and there's just this little fantasy flash in black and white 16 mil of him imagining the door flying open and she's there waiting for him open arms enraptured that the vampire is about to devour and you get this kind of elegant music and it's just a momentary flash and then it cuts back to him outside the door imagining that that's what's about to happen and then Mm. he bursts through the door and it doesn't happen and she's in a face mask and it's really unglamorous and unsexy yeah she's coming out of the toilet (laughs) yeah 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 that's it probably hasn't washed her hands and it's just this sort of like really drawn out slow murder and it's really kind of uncomfortable viewing and Mm. i just felt at that moment i was like okay this is like it's really interesting to to de-glamorize the sort of myth of vampirism you know i'm not like a big vampire fan either but i think there's a couple of really great movies about the subject either like super stylish like the coppola film or um you know, really kind of raw and unglamorous, like near dark. You know, I think they they're two sort of great examples. Did you did you find yourself warming to the kind of the semi amateur acting and? Well, yeah, I, I it took me a second because you know there is that thing of when you settle in to watch a movie and it's kind of pretty shoddily made. It can be quite frustrating because you know, at middle age, you don't have that much time for bad movies. <laughs> but I, very quickly, I just felt this kind of the ambition of it you know like they have got limited resources and you know limited talent in front of the camera but you know they're just making the best of it with those resources and the Mm. sort of the ambition and the vision kind of balance it out and there are some really interesting performances the um i can't remember her name but the the housewife that he has an affair with she's really kind of yeah that's it yeah she's really kind of enigmatic and charismatic and melancholic and she's you know i was watching going who is she she is incredible and she never acted again after that it was just one role it was very bizarre so yeah the the film i think uh i think it sort of 
I don't know, it gave me one of those vampire hypnosis things where you're just sort of me mesmerized by it, you know, in spite of all of its faults, which are on the surface, you know, from like that early sequence on the train, he switches off the light in his carriage, the next shot is a cut, and then it's a shot of him switching off the light in his carriage, he does it twice, so I watched it twice to see if he did do it twice, if there was a second lamp or something, just such a weird thing just to leave in and not like correct somewhere down the line but yeah warts and all it'd be good to get into a major topic then because it's the filmmaking style is uh, Romero gets a lot of plaudits because he used to you know he edits his own stuff and, and people kind of praise the precision of his editing and I think this is a, a very good example of a distinct editing style that both works and doesn't work like the I mean we just described the opening sequence of the film and that's very heavily edited and you can see you know throughout the film but particularly here like his industrial filmmaking background where you you know you shoot lots and lots of coverage you know you get this and then you get another angle and then you get this and you plan your shots in advance where I'm going to have a close-up going here and you can see like you know all the, all the kind of extreme close-ups that you're cutting to for his prepping all the preparation yeah, yeah. And after he's committed the murder, all all of the kind of tidying up and getting all of that stuff's been heavily storyboarded and has been shot that way and then cut yeah. that way. But it elevates it, I think. You know, it stops it from just being another shonky B movie, another shonky yeah. gore gore movie. That's that that kind of detail, and it, you know, maybe it's not even the detail of the filmmaking. I think it's more the um the fascination with the subject it feels like it's a bit like kubrick shooting knobs and dials and just being interested with the technological aspects of the, the space that the characters live in i think romero is definitely into martin's I, I don't even want to call it vampirism i think it's his psychosis whatever it is that's happening so i'm just going to backtrack slightly but it's weird it's a weird thing to watch because you're, I'm appreciating this technique and I'm really liking it, but at the same time, it's it's not flowing for me. And there's a there's a few other scenes in this. For example, the well, it's, it's the only victim that Martin actually kind of stakes out and and attacks in the film. You know, where where the, the young wife is surprised with her lover. Oh yeah. And the whole thing there, you can see it's been very very much storyboarded, um, but the cutting doesn't quite work, and it's something to do with the camera the sort of lack of camera movement as well. It's like every setup is fairly static. I know there's a, a few shots where you kind of track left to right or right to left, but there's very little actual moving camera. And it's all these kind of carefully boarded, almost kind of static shots, kind of cut together very quickly. And it, it kind of works on paper and it, it, it does have a way of working when you're watching it, but it's not, doesn't really flow in oh a way no, that that's feels... The the best example of bad filmmaking in the film that sequence because it goes on and on and the characters yeah. are running right it's a bit like a, a staged farce you know with people opening doors and closing windows and running upstairs and downstairs it just kind of goes on yeah. and on and on well i i found it went on i didn't mind it i thought that the original setup was brilliant and you know the, the no i don't know him the kind of panicked panic line of yeah, the wife to her lover who just thinks they've been surprised by her husband or exactly something. yeah there's great stuff in it it's a great setup and and the actual action is great but as you say it goes on it kind of seems to repeat itself exactly it seems to do something mm. and then do exactly the same thing for a repeat and then just kind of winds down 
it's it's carefully filmed but it's choppily filmed in cuts that it is a bit of a barrage and it just kind of goes on as you say forever what so what's your take on the character of martin do you think he's a vampire do you think he's psychotic or do you think the ambiguity of the film leaves it completely open-ended i think the well I think the film leaves it open-ended. I'm I'm one of those people who's happy to just go along with the supernatural read on it and say yes, oh, yeah. he is a vampire. I'm happy to accept, and I'll take you know, Kuda's backstory for him. I'll take that as as real and and go with the film like that. As I think I've said before, I have very little patience for those films that that demands that something that could be scary or supernatural they insist on it it being amb- ambiguous and there being a real yeah. explanation for it. I prefer to go with the supernatural one because it's creepier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to go with Martin actually being a vampire, just being you know an unusual vampire without any of the myths or stuff that have been built up around it. The black and white f- flashbacks to him in Eastern Europe somewhere, probably Romania, they seem to hint at you know him being chased out of the country for being a vampire, hunted down fleeing overseas you know that kind of dracula myth the the boat mm. to another country even those even those are left fairly ambiguous though because all that you learn from from them really is that he attacked a young woman and was chased out of town for it um so even that stuff is is kind of sitting on the fence a bit but it's the fact that it's filmed in that 1930s look i was just wondering because the first time they use that technique it's a fantasy whether there was a suggestion that these other black and white sequences were also fantasy but it is all just in his head. He's a fantasist. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I do very much like the way that the film deglamorizes. Well, it deglamorizes pretty much everything, but it, it goes to great pains to um, deglamorize the murders, or certainly the first murder that takes place. Um, yeah, you, you've flagged up that you know he comes in and he has this kind of fantasy vision of a, a, a woman welcoming him but she's actually coming out of the toilet. You know, you hear the toilet flushing in the background. Yeah, the, face, yeah. the face mask on that, that magically disappears later in the yeah, scene. Yeah, it does, so it does. You've just got to grit your teeth and get past that. Yeah, there's so many of those little moments where at some point you just have to throw in the towel and say, look, I'm enjoying this enough that I forgive you. But yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely no eroticizing this. It's just she resists, you know not sexualized in any way at all she kind of strongly resists him calling him an asshole pervert freak and yeah yeah, and she kicks back at one point and you know this again makes me think that he's not a vampire because she almost overpowers him you know vampires are supposed to have like supernatural strength and he's she's been drugged and she still manages to flip him and pin him down and it's the sedatives that he uses are so slow acting that it just means it's, it's a long long kind of haul until yeah, the person she, passes out and she's cursing yeah. him and fighting back and, and I think she's still conscious when he cuts her wrists yeah, as well that's a horrible, but she, horrible yeah that's yeah it is it sort of just creeps you out just makes you balls <laughs> go a little bit tight in your guts doesn't it there's some really nice stuff throughout it's quite carefully written and there's there's little kind of moments that kind of knock the floor out from under you throughout there's a bit during this murder scene where you know he says, "Oh, don't worry, you know I'm always very careful with the needles." And she realizes, you know, "What do you mean, always careful with the <laughs> yeah, needles? How many, you know, how many times have you done this?" And then even when he's kind of stripped to naked and he's and he's having sex with her, it's it's there's nothing kind of voyeuristic at all about it. It feels more like 
necrophilia effectively yeah yeah and then you know interestingly there's just as much time spent with the cleaning up and that's covered just as as forensically as there was with the preparation you know it's it's not one of those things where it's there to titillate you and then just move on to the next thing you have to kind of deal with the aftermath in real time yeah that's the lessons he's learned isn't it he says from doing this you know we don't know how many people he's killed before we meet him on the train but yeah he's he's definitely well practiced and then later on you know we you know we just talked about it but the 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 longer kind of chase around the house with the with the other housewife and and her lover which kind of drags on and on and on and i know it's kind of framed as an action sequence but it, it it's it's not that exciting a sequence and it becomes quite quite a troll and it's not you know it's not an exciting yeah i mean i like moment. i love that he uses his first injection to jab the lover and then has to wait for that to take effect before he jabs him again to try and render him unconscious and then isn't there something about him not being able to kill the woman because the man has been there well no the thing is that he he usually does two things at once with his victims he'll he'll be able to have sex with them and he'll be able to drink their blood but because this guy's here he can drink his blood and he won't have to kill the woman he can just rape her that's that for him is a bonus that he doesn't have to kill her because you know he feels quite remorseful in a certain sense for the things that he does but he he doesn't have to kill this woman so later on in the film when he's finding himself you know sexually satisfied with a fairly normal relationship he's having trouble picking a victim because he usually picks his victims on the basis of who he's attracted to but he doesn't have that sexual hunger anymore so he can't yeah, pick I a see. victim i see i see i found it quite gratifying during that <laughs> during that attack that whole attack thing oh you know this this woman at least doesn't have to die she's going to be raped by a murderer but she doesn't have to die at least um slightly going back to the theme of sort of deglamorizing i i find it really really kind of pleasing throughout the film that um things that you think are going to be set up as kind of kind of predictable way are all uh, are knocked down like when uh kuda's brought him back home and he's saying you know my granddaughter lives with me she will talk to you you will not talk to her and you automatically think oh okay young attractive granddaughter you know there's going to be some sexual tension where you know and then of course his granddaughter turns up and she's just a a, a normal woman who looks like a normal woman she yeah was, a thoroughly decent woman yeah. is young woman yeah and then when you know mrs santini picks him up and you know you've had kind of a brief a brief kind of titillating from martin's point of view flash of her in her underwear as she answers the door and then she takes him for a drive and asks him for something from the glove box and there's you know there's a, there's a box of tampax in there which you know it's, it's all these things where where things are set up as as you know seductive cliches but then you know uh, undermined almost immediately you're right you know it's it's toilets it's menstruation it's love affairs you know the the second housewife is has got a boyfriend around when her husband's away you know the last kind of set of murders he's just like killing tramps you know which is it's just grim it's grim isn't it yeah i like the way that the film is extremely fair and even-handed with all its characters um obviously martin martin's ambiguity throughout i mean he's he's clearly a monster and what he's been doing for a long long time is monstrous and uh, you know I'm, I'm glad by the end that he's dead but at the same time he's such a vulnerable sympathetic man and, and yeah and so naive i mean kuda asks him if he's an imbecile doesn't he i think he's been is the backstory something about martin's mother committing suicide and him being sent 
to live with Kuda? I'm not sure. I, I, he came from another American city, didn't he? So I think maybe he's just kind of run out of options there and he's been moved on somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird that he turns up at, you know, his cousin's house, who is this kind of crazy old man dressed in, like, white suit, white tie, white shirt, white trousers, <laughs> white shoes, uh, and who's, like, banging on about Nosferatu and hanging garlic and bells around the house and thrusting crucifixes um, and then he's like tomorrow you come and work in my shop <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's it's not, he's not even locking him up he's like giving him a job and sending him out in the community to meet young women and you know yeah i don't think he's really thought it through you know ending the family curse he knows what he's going to do he just says don't do it in this town or, or, or i'll murder you that's true he said doesn't he say something like um first i'm gonna save your soul and then i'm gonna end your life then or something will, like then that will destroy you yeah that's uh, but even kudo seems like a you know a ridiculous you know with his with his kind of pristine white suit and his, his superstition seems like a crazy old man when you get to see bits of his life you actually kind of warm to him a little bit i mean he's yeah this is the thing he's a horrible person and he's a horrible patriarch and towards the end he's pretty despicable when he's talking to arthur and and putting down his own daughter and in, mm. in his conversation with Arthur. But at the same time, you see the little details of his life and you see him kind of walking to his shop with somebody else he knows in the neighbourhood and, and how all the kind of elderly customers coo over him and, and are slightly yeah, awe sure. of him. And then when you see him, you know, having a drink in, in an old people's drinking hole, um, it's, it's, he, he kind of is, is fleshed out quite nicely. He's not the kind of stereotype that you get from the first scenes. No, but he is still like a... Or, you know, close-minded old grump at the end of the day, isn't he? You know, even when yeah. he's talking to the new priest in town and he's talking about demons and family curses and the priest is, like, just laughing at him and he's like, don't you believe this? And he's like, no, but I know a priest who does. And then the next <laughs> scene is that priest trying to perform, like, an exorcism on Martin. It's, it's, mm. You know, just this that silly old goat just needed his point of view to be reaffirmed by anybody that would you know, validate it. I guess we're jumping forward a bit. You know, that was Romero playing the, um, the priest I know. for dinner. I only got it on second viewing after I'd read the cast. And then I was like, wait, which priest was he? Because that, <laughs> he's so good. He's, he's such so a brilliant actor. Yeah, it was, and he that, I was like, that can't like, be him. He gives himself an opening line, which just nails the character perfectly. He's <laughs> like, oh, would you like, would you like, was it something like, would you like some coffee, father? No, but I'd like some more wine. So, like, yeah. oh, this is, this man is a hypocrite. Um, but I really like that exorcism. I, I get the feeling that Father Howard had just kind of like badgered this older priest to come along and go through the motions just to keep this old man happy because he might contribute something towards the church fund. It's quite funny. They laugh off the exorcist as well, don't they? But yeah, I, you know, there's, there's moments where Kuda seems, where he's talking about the family curse. He seems, you know, quite sensible and, and, and down to earth about it. You know, when he's talking to Christina about it and going through the family albums, he's not... He's not ranting and raving. He's just kind of discussing it as if it were quietly discussing part of the family history. Yeah, the family shame. Yeah. But then there's nice stuff with her. She's a really nice counterpoint to him because, you know, she's seen no evidence of this curse being real. She's running out of patience with her grandfather. And in the end, she leaves. And when she's gone, we see him quite deflated by that, you know, to, to lose her from his home, I think quite a big loss for him yeah i really like christine forrest's performance um i mean generally the sort of 
there's there's something about non-professional actors that I think can give you magical things that you don't you would be very very hard pressed to get from a professional actor and even a professional actor trying hard not to act as, yeah trying not to be self-conscious I think that, yeah. yeah or, or very... trying trying to act in a non-actually way and yeah, you yeah. know in your sort of Cassavetes movies type thing yeah um there's lovely surprising moments and and kind of tones of performance that you can get from a non-professional which makes you know over the course of a movie can make it quite surprising and affecting and i think that's something that christine forrest has in this i mean i know she's she's often the character is often overwrought and and angry and upset about things throughout but it's just it's quite a warm likable performance um for example when you know when martin's doing his magic trick at the dinner table yeah yeah kind of um, just a kind of surprise laugh at that is is something I don't think you could act. And I, and I really like the fact that we get a character like Christina in this. Um, and she's a normal looking woman. You know, she's in a town with very limited options. Um, her boyfriend doesn't really like her or respect her or have much yeah. time for her. Um, and it kind of doesn't make her a victim. She kind of manages to leave. I think it's just yeah. quite, quite, quite a generous bit of writing and yeah, she has a really nice kind of closing gambit, doesn't she? When she's on her way out, she's like, you know, this. I'm not even going to stay with this guy, you know. He's not the guy for me. We're leaving together, but, you know, I don't see a future with him. But what he is, is a way for me to move to, he's my passport out of this to something else. And then I'll build up from there. You know, she's, she's very, like, clear-minded. Uh, I really like that that section of it. As the legendary Tom Savini is Arthur. And didn't he, he acted in that? biker movie as well didn't he didn't he have one of the lead roles in that Romero biker movie Night Riders uh, I've never seen it the thing with Ed Harris oh, I think so yeah yeah they're like a circus troupe aren't they yeah like an Ar- Arthurian legends on motorbikes on mo- thing. Yeah. yeah I've seen the trailer <laughs> it's, no, it's never appealed <laughs> yeah um, so I guess we, we could talk about Mrs. Santini, who's never given her first name, she's just Mrs. Santini. Yeah, you said before, it's a really nice kind of, again, that's like a non-professional performance. There's something slightly, she's got kind of a very kind of flat, unseductive effect to her voice. Yeah. But at the same time, she's, you know, you do warm to her. And I think there's something about, you know, that maybe that this character was very close to her life because she has that kind of melancholic aura about her you know she is too young and attractive to be that sad and it just there's something about it that just kind of tugs at your heartstrings you know she's she is a good looking woman but like with this just deep sadness across her face that she can't even she can smile but she doesn't smile through it you know it, it never sort of shifts from her shoulders I think it's quite interesting the way that, that all the kind of women characters in this are kind of victims. I mean, I know the, the film goes to great lengths to show how run down that part of Pittsburgh was at the time. Mm. It was really kind of post-industrial. Uh, everything's, you know, all the young people have left. It's basically an old people's town. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I, I think the, the plight of the women in this, you know, Christina and Mrs. Santini is, is kind of tied to that town. It's, it's these kind of young people who are aging too quickly because they're living in these surroundings which, which have nothing nothing to offer. And yeah, it's like a cloud of death, isn't it? Slowly yeah. draining their life out of them. Mm. The uh, 
the vampire metaphor. And there's kind of a hostility to it as well when Cooter's in the bar and they're, you know, he's talking to Arthur and he says, you know, if, if you don't like it, you can leave. So that's, yeah. that's the hostility of the old people. Who, that's that's, yeah. the, that's the, the feeling of the environment. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a classic trope of the kind of uh, those types of people that don't want to embrace change. You mm. know, the misanthropes, it's always love it or leave it, isn't it? You know, yeah, exactly. Should we talk a little bit about John Amplis, the lead? Yeah, sure. Do you know how he came to be cast as the lead? I, I couldn't see that he'd done anything really before this. I think both he and Lincoln, the guy who played Cuda, did local repertory theatre. Oh, okay. Uh, I think Ramiro cast from, from local actors, and I think he knew he had like a, a network of, of... Is he from Pittsburgh? Yeah. Romero. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he started out making films there. Um, he, I think he set up, uh, I think it was called Latent Image. Again, this is where, you know, documentarians can correct me. Yeah, okay. But I think it's a company called Latent Image, which made industrial films. Um, so that was his training. He, he used to make industrial films for firms in the area <laughs> and then pooled his resources, his talent and resources to make Night of the Living Dead and then made a series of features kind of non-horror features after that which uh, kind of bankrupted the company and then he and Rubenstein the producer is it Donald yeah. Rubenstein set up Laurel Productions to make this movie um, and then continued working together from that point on so he he kind of knew I would imagine he knew everyone in terms of acting and filmmaking talent in the area because he'd been working there for a decade oh okay yeah that makes sense uh, I read that the um the location Kuda's house is the sound man's house it's uh, his family home and his his mum I think was quite religious so that all of that kind of iconography around the house and the dolls and things it was all just his mum's stuff <laughs> I read a nice a anecdote uh, about Romero which you know like I said I've never been a fan but after I read it I was just like wow what a fucking decent bloke that um, when Richard Rubenstein was getting the budget together for this he realised that Romero was in lots of debt to all the investors in all of his previous films. Mm. And Rubenstein was like, look, man, this is how you just bankrupt yourself right off all that debt. You get a fresh start and you'll have some money in your pocket at the end of Martin. And he was like, I can't do that. These people put their faith in me and I respect their investment and I'm going to pay it off. And apparently it took all the way through till, is it Dawn of the Dead or one of the kind of big zombie films where he suddenly made a ton of money. That would be Dawn of the Dead, yeah. Yeah, and then paid back all of the people that invested in his early early movies. And I was just like, wow. That's fantastic. Massive, massive respect for that, yeah. So, yeah, by the time I got to my second viewing, I was I had lots of love for <laughs> Martin and Romero. And, yeah. Everything, everything I've read about Romero just says he's an absolute gent. Like, yeah. right, right through to the end of his life, he's an absolute... A lovely guy to meet, full of enthusiasm, always friendly, just an, an absolute 100% gentleman. So yeah, John Amplis as Martin, he's got a very interesting kind of look. He's got these kind of terrifying pale grey eyes, which mm. if you look at them in isolation, you can easily imagine he's a vampire. Yeah. But then you see the rest of his face and he's got kind of this goofy, kind of slightly, forgive me, John Amplis, but slightly, slightly buck tooth mouth and kind of prominent lips and looks like kind of like slightly un unformed adolescent yeah he's really slender isn't he and kind of uh you know there's no sort of kind of muscle tone on him at all he's just 
it just kind of is is there i think it's it's a really nice performance until you get to you know until the third act where he starts talking to the the radio host and you get um those telephone calls can can give you an insight into the things that he's thinking and feeling you're kind of getting a lot of it all the way through aren't you and a lot of it's kind of and a lot of it's kind of given with with just kind of looks and body language because yeah, martin speaks very little yeah, yeah, and he's kind of less convincing when he's speaking as well. So it's good that he can do most of it in kind of gesture and movement and looks. He's he's a good kind of physical presence. I love that scene we talked about in the middle of the film with the uh, double murder, which goes on for ages. You know, he is pretty sprightly in those sequences, leaping from room to room, racing up and down the stairs. You know, he's got a nice kind of physicality to him. Um, but I like the stuff with the DJ because it is more direct and it's kind of a Q&A, essentially, about vamp- vampirism seen through Martin's gaze, you know, how, how he's interpreted the, uh, the curse. It gets crazy sometimes. And sometimes I think they're really going to catch me and hurt me or even kill me. Yeah, I've seen that in the movies. People trying to stop your kind. to really stay calm when that happens hmm. and you just have to remember that the ones that are after you are never calm people are never calm when they're angry no it's true it's very true for a long time i didn't care if they killed me most people spend their lives worrying about dying for a long time i wished i would die or i wish somebody would kill me it's been a long time for me a long time full of crazy people I'm, I'm always a fan of anything that you can do in writing which which allows you to give clear exposition <laughs> but in a, in a you know a subtly disguised way but just make it as clear as possible I like the mm. fact that um, let's say a quiet place like most mm. of the dialogue up in, up front is kind of sign language which is subtitled so the subtitles yeah. can say very clearly what you need to express without yeah, yeah. the need for any fancy dialogue or slipping things in it's just like mm-hmm. this and this and we need to do this it's yeah i'm always a fan of that we talked about tom savini um but we didn't talk about we talked about him as an actor but not his special effects work yeah i think this is the film that launched him isn't it yeah and i have to say i quite like the the special effects i thought they seemed you know i, th- I think we're so accustomed to special effects that you can kind of see it coming when there's a a nice kind of static shot on a a forearm held perfectly still you know that something's going to happen but i liked the um i like i liked the razor blades (laughs) across the skin and it popping open and the blood coming out i liked the sort of the miss scoring where he did it once and it doesn't quite burst and does it again you know this it definitely again has that sort of grounded realism and it's not kind of cool backlit blood splatters it's just kind of very matter of fact right up until until um you know even martin's execution at the end is kind of a very dry brutal <laughs> slaying yeah they're quite restrained in this he's he's somebody who's famous for not just for ramiro films but for extreme splatter but yeah quite subtle i wasn't too keen on the on the throat poking um that was the one that felt super fakey for me. Mm. And I have to wonder, was it, was it something to do with censorship or ratings that, that the blood couldn't actually look like blood? 
because it's kind of this thick pale red syrupy stuff which would be twice as convincing were you just to darken it a bit more yeah no there is something around that period isn't there I remember there was something about the blood in taxi driver and that's yeah, why they, they had to um tint the final act or the final gunfight didn't they to change the color of it from uh, but I remember but as part of that anecdote, Scorsese was really, really excited because tinting it darker made the blood look darker and more realistic. I think it's just the amount of splatter that was going on in that that, that frightened the censors. So he had to kind of, oh, yeah. they thought by darkening it, it would tone it down, but it just made it more realistic. Hmm. But I'm just wondering why, why there's this weird sort of colorblindness in so many 70s movies that the blood looks kind of pale. I mean, when I bleed, it's almost, it's almost black. I wonder, though, if it isn't just a... Uh you know, a, um, a a quirk of the era that, that that's what blood in films look like. You know, now we look for something, I guess, more realistic. And I think for an audience at the time, that was probably shocking and terrifying and that they probably couldn't tell it was just, you know, VFX. I, had, I did have a note, actually, talking about the gore, that this was seized and confiscated in England under the Section 3 of the Obscene Publications Act during the whole kind of video nasty thing in the 80s. So, it, you know, it, the the blood must have been effective. And maybe it was something specific to the film, that it was more grounded and, and real and in a sort of post-Yorkshire Ripper climate, the, the idea of a young man going from house to house murdering young women might have held you know more weight with the censors than you would think. I do think the film kind of stumbles quite quite badly in the third act i'm not kind of wishing that there would be it's weird you think back on it it's it's there's only actually one kind of stalking murder in this whereas you you think of it as 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 more because just because he's a serial murderer and you think that's what happens in the film but there does seem to be a bit of padding towards the end you know the whole scene with him terrorizing kuda with the dry ice and the yeah and the vampire's right. cape and the fake teeth is is ridiculous and it, it does nothing that he hasn't already done in the first scenes in the film. You know, well, the only thing I thought was with that, because I quite like that stuff where he's, you know, dressed up as a vampire and he's got his Halloween costume on and, you know, he's, I just felt like he was really goading Kuda, like he'd really had enough of this old man chasing him around the house with garlic and shouting Nosferatu every time he sees him. And I think he was just saying, like, it's a big kind of, Fuck you, Kuda. But mm. I also thought that was enough to piss Kuda off to kind of <laughs> hammer a, a stake through his heart at the end as well. Mm. I thought it sort of antagonized him enough. And then there's this whole, like, massively convoluted climax where he robs a charity shop and sets off the alarm in some panic uh, cleanup, you know, where he's kind of forgotten his earlier lesson of being prepared. And the police are there <laughs> in an instant. <laughs> to uh, ar arrest somebody breaking into a charity shop and then he kind of runs around the corner into a warehouse where there's a drug deal going down and then there's kind of absolute carnage as everyone's kind of shooting and the cops are involved and drug dealers and their suppliers and mines just leaping backwards and forwards like a kind of <laughs> little skinny toad through it all and then just kind of bolts for the door at one point you know he he's definitely good at the sort of running around physical stuff and the whole the whole action chase as well this is this is where the kind of kind of choppy construction really falls apart for me in this whole sequence because it's you really want a bit of moving camera and you really want to 
you really want to deviate from your storyboard a little bit you know you could hold on a shot a bit longer before cutting to the the next mm. one on the board and because there's very little camera movement so much of it is just like tripod shot followed by tripod shot nicely framed and everything yeah sure but tripod shot followed by tripod shot and another and another maybe the occasional move from right to left um it just feels really really choppy and convoluted and doesn't really contribute anything overall yeah you're definitely right the, f the, f the flow goes at the end i do like the abruptness of the ending but but you know i i would have enjoyed more stuff him with mrs santini i i one of my main well i'll come to it later but one of my main pleasures of the film is just the kind of slightly slightly tripped out slightly off kilter feel of just you know hanging around in a mid-70s rundown american suburb that, that yeah yeah sun-kissed hazy thing with the with the slightly distorted fender road soundtrack and everything I could, I could kind of live in that space for a long time oh yeah for me it's all those cars in the background as well all those beautiful kind of 70s american muscle cars <laughs> just all kind of used day to day they're not show vehicles they're just kind of rolling around town in like really cool mustangs and all of that stuff yeah, the, yeah that's that's the americana isn't it and yeah and for me i could have enjoyed martin i really like him when he's doing his deliveries and going from house to house and you've got all those mm. kind of quirky little suburban gardens and passageways yeah, yeah. and stuff i could wander around the town with him for ages but you know it, so it seems a shame that i can see how narratively you know he's he's becoming less focused you know his affair with mrs santini is making him less less jittery and less focused and 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 less routine driven and so things start to fall apart for him but at the same time it doesn't help the film that much mm. um that big clunky action sequence i think if it had just been a little bit more justified you know you have the kind of the tramps who are probably junkies you know maybe casting aspersions on tramps but you know they're quite close to where the, the dealers and the uh the uh, suppliers are meeting up so maybe um you know you could have tied it together a little neater um yeah and and this whole thing of the charity shop being like heavily alarmed and the police showing up in an instant mm. and him just being so unprepared for that final murder those final murders um yeah, that for me, I was just like, oh, what a shame. You just didn't stop and think that stuff through a little bit better and make it a little bit neater. Mm. And it would have been, you know, a very satisfying climax instead of a, a very sort of, it kind of just makes your head shake a little bit. You're like, wait, what's going on now? What now? What now? What's happening? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, yeah. it's a little bit distracting. So he talks about the, um, well, I talked a lot about the editing. Um is there anything else that you liked about it, technically speaking? Um, I mean, I did like some of the. I you know, well, no, I I liked the technique. I liked the the f most of the edit and the way it was photographed. I didn't mind it being static shots. It did, it did have a kind of. There is something classical about directors that storyboard and shoot to the board you know it's that sort of wells hitchcock tradition mm. and it kind of has some of that you know where the scenes are that mapped out and precise and it it pays off mostly i like the score i like the music i thought that was a i like the score a lot yeah it's the producer's brother isn't it 
So Richard is the producer and Donald is the composer. Yeah, I really liked it. And it got very strange. I Obviously, you remember the, the opening music and the kind of Fender Road. Big theme, have, yeah. The big theme. But there's some of the stuff later on, um, particularly during the, you know, the attack on the woman and her lover, uh, where it gets very, very strange. It kind of like slowed down human grunting and stuff and, and <laughs> odd, odd fidgeting background noises and whoops and whistles and it reminded me a lot and i wonder if i wonder if he'd heard it because this soundtrack did get a commercial release a couple of times over um i wonder if elliot goldenthal heard it um when he was scoring drugstore cowboy okay have you seen that uh, not for a long time i have seen it but yeah not for a long time that has a, a similar sort of like whoops and grunts and 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 stuff going on obviously that's a okay. trippy movie but yeah yeah sure it's a uh, it's very very similar yeah, I really, really like the soundtrack. I, I went to see online if you could still get it, but it's, it's out of print on both formats and costs a lot. Maybe you'll get them. There's, this is supposedly coming out on Blu-ray in this country. It's um, Second Sight, I think. Uh, they're bringing out a massive, massive definitive um, 4K box set of Dawn of the Dead with every single iteration and every cut and every extra. Oh, wow. But they did promise to do Martin as well, at least on Blu-ray. Because yeah, we talked about this um, before we were recording um, about the formats. I'd found a Blu-ray copy and sent it to you. And you were like, this is shit. This is cropped. <laughs> My DVD is better than this. You know, this just looks like an upscale DVD cropped and they've ruined the composition. And you were right. I did a little side-by-side -side and watched it. And I was like, yeah, this was definitely shot for... Four three, like yeah. They they weren't planning on cropping it later, and it looks wonderful in four three. It looks really good, doesn't it? Every, I, particularly in the in the first part of the film, there's a lot of really nice framing. You know, Martin's walking through Pittsburgh with Coop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it straight away I'd sort of longed for a, a nice restoration, a respectful restoration of the sixteen mil footage. You know, but you were saying mm. something about it being tied up with an estate. I don't know. There's for a long time it's been denied a release. Um, somebody out there who might know better sh could please tell us. Um, you, should, you should read that book was, you've got. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know the reason, but it was held up for a long time. Like the last time it got a legit release in America and the UK was around 2003, 2004, which was the Anchor Bay DVD that I've got, which for the time was phenomenal. You know, it was a new mm. transfer. It's got commentary, it's got short documentary bits and pieces. Um, and I've held on to that, but yeah, it's, it's been held up and I, d I don't know why. Everything else of his has been through sort of multiple iterations. Do you know anything about the making of? How they kind of got the money together, what the process of the, the writing? No, I think um, what, what little I know is that uh, Romero wanted to move ahead and make Dawn of the Dead, his second kind of Night of the Living Dead movie, but um, I think Rubenstein was only able to raise a certain amount of money, so they decided to go ahead and do this one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think, think Rubenstein told everyone the budget was a quarter of a million, $250,000, but I think it was only 100000 but he said he didn't want people coming up to him saying, <laughs> can you make another movie for a hundred grand?" so he told everyone it was two fifty. Very, very wise. Yeah, that's it. Canny. <laughs> yeah, I think he is a smart guy, though, Rubenstein. I did a little bit of research on him. And uh, let me see if I get this in the right order. Um, I've, he had a... Looks like a, 
a relationship with Stephen King because he produced Pet Cemetery and then um, Creep Show as well, I would imagine. Creep Show, yeah, some stuff with the cinematographer of this was Michael Gornick, and he directed Creep Show too. Oh. Um, he's also the voice of the radio DJ in Martin. Yeah. Um, but he shot um, Dawn and Day of the Dead, but then he directed four episodes of Tales from the Crypt and then ended up producing with Rubenstein a TV show called Monsters, which was like an American cult TV show about a family of monsters watching TV every week, and it was an anthology show. And then he co-produced The Stand and The Langoliers, um, Stephen King oh, adaptations, God. <laughs> with, um, with Rubenstein. But Rubenstein... Um, since 1996 has held the film and TV rights to Dune. And he produced the miniseries Dune and Children of Dune and still retains the rights to this day. He is credited as the executive producer on Denis Villeneuve's uh, duology that's coming out. So, good yeah, for good, good for him. That was <laughs> that's a smart worked move. out well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must be like 100 years old, but, you know, so what? You know, it's his grandchildren's yeah. pension. I like the fact that... Um Gornick went on to a career. You know, he was just like a part of Romero's kind of wider group of people who, who and he was like just the like entourage. A, yeah, his entourage, filmmaking entourage. And he was um, prior to this shooting this, he was uh, like a, a sound engineer or a sound assistant. Oh yeah, okay. There's something that I've been trying to sort of get my head around that I wanted to talk about, which was one thing I really respected and appreciated about the film was how it kind of had the scope to give me as a member of the audience this kind of really clear picture of a town's community. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't one of these where you have, okay, here's this guy who's going to do this and that, and everybody has a sort of really clearly defined character. I think it was just the sort of authentic eccentricities of real people came across. So I think that's what sort of made it more compelling as a sort of, b-movie genre film was the fact that martin felt like he was stalking in a real town and real people and that's what made his kind of bloodlust and violence more terrifying was that it felt like he was killing real people mm. not like supermodels or um you know the cast of scream or anything like that it just felt like these were fuck he's just killed another person you know and I guess I wanted to credit like Romero, some, not something I'd ever thought about in his work before, the little bit that I've seen, but to be able to paint a portrait of a town, I thought that was actually really quite masterful. Mm. It's interesting there's no young people in the film. I mean, I know Martin is theoretically young. I, I find that Christina seems to me to be, you know, late 20s, 30. Mm, sure. Um, and Arthur the same. But there aren't any young people in this at all. Nobody, you know no teenagers i guess there's the kids hassling the housewives outside the supermarket but there's no young characters there's no youth in the film yeah, at all. yeah. It's, it's that's not martin's world though is it he's seems like he's perpetually stuck with old people if he has just come from his mum's you know mm. his dying mum's house she was probably very similar kind of age group all those old bags that come into kuda's shop yeah. you know they're all shouting at martin aren't they you're a goddamn lazy bastard <laughs> you know and all of that stuff and it is just old people and housewives isn't it that's it's, all he kind of all he sees it's a really brave choice for a filmmaker you know to, to make a horror movie that doesn't have any kind of young people or young 
young yeah, characters yeah. For, for young viewers to identify with. It is just, you know, sticking firmly to this. It's an old town. It's full of old people. Mm-hmm. What about vampires? You haven't really spoke about vampires in general. Do you like vampire films? Is that, you know, is it like one of your, are you a big Twilight guy? Is that kind of your thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> I really generally don't like vampire films. I don't dislike them, but I've never, I can't think of one. And I'm literally kind of like mentally scanning my shelves and going through all the ones that I've seen. I can't think of one that I've actively enjoyed. Have you seen Near Dark? Yeah. I, I don't think it works very well for me. Lost Boys? No. You're one of those lost boys. <laughs> oh, I'm not a big fan of the. It's got too much of a reputation now as well, hasn't it? It's like, oh my god, guys, give it a rest. Yeah. Okay, I, under- about- I understand you were 14 when you saw it, but that doesn't make it good. Yeah. You're clutching at straws here. Yeah, no, I was just I mean, trying. I thought I thought you might have one vampire. This is it, isn't it? This is your one vampire film. No, I've just never warmed to them. I didn't like Coppola's Dracula. I, you know, this this. I guess there must be some movies that have vampire aspects that. I like his movies, but I've never... They're just there. It's just something that's been around for so long that it's, you know, it's like... Uh, I'm beginning to think, like, the alien from Alien is that way as well. It's It's been there for so long that it's just... I can't imagine writing either a vampire movie or an alien movie that could be even remotely frightening anymore because it's just there. It's just a thing. All right, so then as a guy that doesn't like vampire films... <laughs> What, what what do you like about this one? Um, well, it's not a vampire film per se. I I like it because it's just I like what sticks in my mind about it and what you know struck me this time as well. This is only like the third time I've seen it in my life. Is just the the mood of it, the kind of slightly sun bleached, um, slightly hazy, dazed mood that the film has, um, and it's you know Martin has kind of a a detached unreal existence and that kind of bleeds through into the film and and the way that that it's made and the way that it's shot it's you know in the same way that Eraserhead has a as a evokes a very strong mood immediately that sticks with you I think this this has a similar thing it's it's you know it's very much like a mid-70s mood but it's something that I that that really I find really evocative and really haunting and that's that's the thing that I like about the movie and there's lots, there's all the other things that we've talked about that I like about it on, you know, on examination, but it's that slightly hazy, burnt out feel that it has that, that I really, really like about it. So there's something about an insular man dressed in clothes from the 70s haunting suburbia that you can really relate to. <laughs> I knew you'd be reductive on it. Oh, yeah. I was, I was trying to piece, piece it together while we were chatting. I thought it'd be in there somewhere. <laughs> That's why I'd recommend it as, as an interesting kind of unique horror movie experience. I, I think I can understand why it wasn't apparently it was, um, you know, it played for a year on midnight screenings and it never quite broke through in the same way that like Eraserhead and certainly Rocky Horror did in the same period. But it was definitely one of those movies that has such, you know, a unique atmosphere and, you know, slightly exploitative elements that will draw a crowd, but then do something very strange with them. Um uh, it's definitely got that feel that I really like. Yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, but on top of that, I'd say that there's definitely the, uh, you know, the the energy of the filmmakers out to make a low-budget film that's ambitious, that tackles, you know, genre and theme and, you know, is cinematic and has, a, a you know, 
of flow and storytelling you know there's definitely that you know by by any means necessary we'll get this film made get it finished get it seen get it out to an audience you know it's going to be gory and challenging and it's going to upset people in suburbia because it's shot on their doorstep and you know it's going to feel real and potentially <laughs> martin's outside of everybody's window just looking in freaking them out you know it, it definitely has all of that kind of i don't know the will of the filmmakers to get it made which i, I just i really loved and i i think like massive respect to them for this because i didn't feel it in some of those other films uh, I just felt like they were hodgepodge, but this, yeah, for all of its flaws, you know, it's it's just a great example of low budget filmmaking. Hey!